Welcome to episode 66 of the American Tributaries podcast, where to break out of the bubbles we've all been living in, we're using modern technology to explore the various currents of people in our great country, kind of like a 21st century Lewis and Clark journey. I'm your host, Michael Whitten, here in Brooklyn, New York, and thank you for joining me in this exploration of America. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Laura Saboni. Laura lives about 2,400 miles west-northwest of me in Portland, Oregon, where she's pursuing her doctorate in nursing anesthesia at Oregon Health and Science University. She's also been an Army Reservist for about the last seven years, and she also happens to be a fellow graduate of Smithtown High School East, although quite a few years after I was there. Laura, thanks so much for joining me today. How are you doing, and could you share a bit of your story? Yeah, thank you for having me. How's it going? Um, It's going well. So, uh, yeah, I started, I grew up on Long Island, on Long Island, in Long Island. Uh, Went to high school around Smithtown East, Uh, graduated in 2012, and um, I've always loved the mountains and grew up skiing and wanted to go up to the University of Vermont. Um, At that point, my plan was to get my nursing degree, and uh, I was really interested in Doctors Without Borders and some more humanitarian stuff. However, my brother was uh, was pursuing the army at that point and being the little sister that I was, I, I was very curious and always running around playing Call of Duty and Halo with him. So uh, <laughs> when I got to University of Vermont, I ended up meeting some ROTC friends and they've introduced me to the military, at least on the nursing side, and decided to uh, go the military route. Now, was that um was that a quick was it a quick decision for you or did you have to like ruminate on that for a while? I I probably ruminated on it for a while. Honestly, it was uh, some connections that I made in one of the uh, cafeterias. I was just asking some questions to a nursing cadet that was uh, that was sitting at our table, and it was more just curiosity rather than anything else. And she messaged me later that day, and she was like, "Hey, I asked uh, our cadre, do you, do you want to come to PT tomorrow morning?" And in my mind, I was like, oh, man, I was just being friendly. Like, I didn't actually want to go. Um, <laughs> but I, I I, went and I loved it. Uh, and some of my closest friends um, were in the military and from college. And I think I was probably more shy in high school. And um, doing the military route, it really forced me into more leadership, more public speaking. I love the military because it, you know, introduces you to people from so many different backgrounds and experiences from every corner of the country for different reasons for joining. Um, and I had a great experience in college. Yeah, the, um, I think ROTC really kind of changes the college experience. Like when I think back to what people were doing in college versus like when I was in our Navy ROTC at Penn I, and, and I wonder like, why wasn't my college experience like theirs? And all of a sudden I'm like, Oh, wait a second, because I had classes three days a week, no later than 9am Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and Thursdays we had drill at seven. <laughs> so yes. I, mean, I don't know if it was the same for you, but I think that like definitely requires, um, a, 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 I guess a, a lot of compromise on the college experience to go into ROTC, especially when you're already there. And well, I, I, I'm happy with the way I did it because my first year I wasn't in ROTC and I was sleeping late and having fun. And then once I finally joined my sophomore year, um, it gave me a really solid friend group. It gave me structure. It gave me discipline. Um, and uh, not to mention just like the benefits of, of being able to have your education paid for through a scholarship or the summer opportunities that you have. So 
For me, uh, even as a nursing student over the summers, I had the opportunity to go to Madagascar um, in oh, wow. Africa. Yeah, they started this. It's called CULP. I'm pretty sure they still do it. It's called um, uh, Cultural Understanding Language Proficiency. And basically, throughout the 20 years of GWAP being in Iraq and Afghanistan, they realized with such a language barrier, it's good to send officers or cadets or soldiers into another country and just kind of like learn other cultures, learn the nonverbal communication. And so they would send cadets over to another country with uh, more of a senior NCO. You would either work with the embassy or you would work with the um, uh, like their West Point equivalent, essentially. So I went to Madagascar and we were uh, partnered with their uh, West Point equivalent, their military academy for about a month and then we had one really fun weekend where we got to go see all the lemurs in this beautiful national park that the country had um and it was great it was really great that is that is amazing and that's quite a i think the, the military kind of really does give you a chance to have that adventure too you know talk about getting out of bubbles yes absolutely absolutely <laughs> um, um go on oh no and then uh what were the other summer things um I got to go out to Fort Carson for like a nursing internship for a summer. And then there was uh, basically a cadet. Where's Fort Carson? Yes, Fort Carson, Colorado. Okay. Um, so they put us uh, they put us up pretty much in a unit in the hospital where we could shadow. And it was more hands-on experience as a student at that point. Um, mm -hmm. We were on orders. It was paid for. Uh, we had really great mentorship. We had some classes that we could do while we were out there. So... Yeah, by the time I graduated, I commissioned as a second lieutenant um, and had a ton of really great experiences and now friends that were pretty much stationed all over the country. Now, when you when you signed up for this, I mean, you were, I mean, we were in the middle of the global war on terror and there was no like no hint of when it would really end or how it would end. Were you, did you have any hesitation? Maybe your family had hesitation? Uh um, no, I maybe I'm a unique case, but my mm -hmm. brother kind of grew up knowing he wanted to do something in the special operations community. And um, by the time I was a sophomore in college, he uh, he was a Green Beret medic. Um, so he deployed uh, to Afghanistan and Africa. And while he was deployed, he worked with um, forward surgical teams with these nurses on these teams, which I'll get to. Um, but I saw that and I was like, that is the most badass thing I could ever do as a nurse in the army. Like I want to do that. So no, in fact, one of my major goals after graduating was I did want a deployment. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but yes, I cannot, I know my, my parents probably were not a huge fan of that. They saw it coming with him. Um, I don't think they saw me joining the military. So that was a bit of a shock. Yeah. Um, and then like when I think back to like. For, at least for me, when I was growing up in Smithtown, I don't really remember much of like a military presence. Um, did you ever, was that things changed at all when you were growing up? No, I would agree with you. There was, I don't, maybe there was a recruiter that came to the high school once and like gave a talk or something. Um, but not many people from my graduating class, maybe two, one, one other that went, I think Marine Corps and then one that enlisted in the Navy, but nobody else that I can think of. It really wasn't really? that big oh, of a, wow. It really was not that big of a presence. What about yourself? 
Um, there was, I mean, there was definitely a handful of people. I remember somebody went to West Point. I, I kind of feel like somebody would have gone to Annapolis. Um, I, but you know, but like when I was when I graduated from high school, I mean, the you know the Berlin Wall was still up. Yeah. So I think the, the there was just there were a lot more slots, and I think it was still just kind of more of our everyday lives. But um, yeah, I think there was more. But like my unit at Penn, we went from 200 uh, midshipmen my freshman year to like 100 by the time I graduated. Wow. So that was that's like that's quite a drawdown. When when so. did you graduate your ROTC program? 93. Okay. Yeah. It's funny how it kind of ebbs and flows because like when I when I commissioned, normally uh, I think in the height of GWAT. Uh, you didn't really have a choice whether you wanted to go active or reserves. You always went active because they needed the mm-hmm. they needed the bodies. Um, but when I commissioned, you had the option of going active or reserve because they basically had too many people. They were over strength on the active duty side, at least for nurses. So I opted to go Army Reserve after a long thought process, um, mostly because I knew I had more more independence, more power and control over my career on the reserve side, um, where I could live where I wanted to and have a little bit more freedom to travel, uh, but still be able to volunteer for those opportunities. But I know right now you don't have that option. So it really mm-hmm. it really goes up and down. Yeah. So when you came out and being like, what was your commitment? I know there's like the advertisement of what's expected to when you're when you're in the Army Reserves. But what was the reality for you? Um, So for me, I think for all the reservists with a scholarship uh, coming out of ROTC, you got to do six years in the reserves, which means actively drilling. And drilling is basically you go in one weekend a month. Uh, to some federal building. Maybe there's some training going on. Maybe you have to do a physical training test. It it varies month to month. Um, And then two weeks a year, you have to do some sort of annual training. That could be you go to a course in like San Antonio, Texas, where like the medical headquarters is, or you go into the field and you set up a field hospital and you practice that thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then you were you then you're you could be activated at any point on like short notice. Yes, um, it could be short notice. For the most part, there were deployment cycles. So over the course of the twenty years, units normally knew that they would deploy once every three years. Now, um, I think for forward surgical teams or more advanced providers uh, like CRNAs, what which is what I'm studying, surgeons, physicians. Um, they found that once things started uh, slowing down in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, they weren't really getting hands-on practice with patients essentially, and their skills would deteriorate. And not to mention these people had private practices. They would normally be losing patients and losing money when they would deploy. So they would cut down deployments to about three months. Um, And then you also have the element of, you know, if you're a surgeon and a small outpost, you're going to be on call 24-7. So you can't sustain that for a really, really long time, especially with the seriousness of what they're doing. Um, yeah. So I would say uh, you would kind of know your deployment cycle. Uh, it would be once every few years and then depending on what your role was. And then for short notice things, wouldn't happen a ton. Um, but I know obviously with COVID, they activated um, some medical units to help out. And that was that was very short notice. Mm-hmm. And then where did, so what were your deployments? 
So I, uh, when I graduated, I started working as an ICU nurse uh, in Washington, D.C., and I knew I wanted to basically become identified as an Army ICU nurse, but there's a lot of paperwork that you have to do to get to that point. So it took me about four years to be identified as an Army ICU nurse, um, and I sought out some deployment uh, vacancies on forward surgical teams. Um, I ended up going to Niger, Africa for 10 months or so. Um, this was wow. in 2020 to 2021. Um, and uh, yeah, we were, we were slated to go to Afghanistan, but I think at that point they started to draw down a lot of troops. And so if you have less troops, you're going to need less medical support. Uh, and so we were cut, but then we were um, reassigned to go to Niger, Africa. And what was I what was the what were you doing there? What was the, like the assignment? Yeah, so uh, we were at a base. It was a drone base uh, that would operate um, surveillance missions mostly around the border, uh, surveilling like Boko Haram and ISIS around the border of uh, Nigeria, Niger, Mali, um, and we were just medical support there. Um, mm -hmm. Honestly, it was not the busiest deployment. Uh, it was not considered a combat zone. Um, although the country itself, if you remember a few years ago, there was an incident with the green berets. There was like four guys that died in Tonga, Tonga. Um, and, uh, I find it interesting that obviously in Afghanistan, you have so much air support and you had so many resources, but when you're in Africa, there was not nearly as much resources and, um, uh, just eyes on what was going on. Um, and so at least for the medical aspect of it, it would take over a day to get patients out when we would have to send them out, uh, which was wow. an interesting challenge on the medical side. Yeah. Wow. Um, and were you able to, like, could you go off base and explore the, the, the town or the country or were you kind of stuck? Um, so we, uh, normally you're pretty stuck. However, uh, being medical, they're always looking for medical support for missions and such. So I got to go off base with uh, teams such as Civil Affairs and uh, be extra medical support for some of their humanitarian missions. And that was really rewarding. Um, just being able to go out into the city and uh, we got to tour one of the, um, the local hospitals, which was, which was really cool. Um, but for the most part, most of our support was on base, uh, training, being on call, uh, we taught CPR and some basic first aid to the Nigerian um, military uh, and then like also all the other Air Force personnel on base. Mm -hmm. how, how many Americans like roughly were on the were there at the base? It was pretty small. It was only a few okay. hundred. Um, okay. So it, it, at times it definitely felt like kind of adult summer camp. Because it was small, mm. everybody ate around the same spot. Everybody went to the same gym. It was it was a really great experience. Um, I got pretty close with my team um, and uh, and all the other people that I worked with because it was it was self sufficient. So you know you had your your civil engineering part, your medical piece, your logistics piece. Um, it was really cool. And were there ever any points where you felt unsafe? No, or you were in danger. Nothing like that. No, it was. Uh, it was. It wasn't. Niger itself wasn't considered a combat zone, but like where we were specifically, it was. 
uh, it was very much in the middle of nowhere. So I felt very mm. safe the entire time. Okay. Yeah. Did you? And then did you? Oh no! Go, go ahead. You were going to ask me where I, where I was. Yeah. Where I deployed. Yeah. Have you deployed okay. at all? Well, I was so when I my assignment when I when I was commissioned was that I went to a cruiser out of Japan. Okay. So I was I was based in Yokosuka, Japan, and you know we would you know get underway, you know I mean relatively periodically, and then I deployed for about three months to the Persian Gulf in '95. Okay, how was that? Did you? Uh, that, I mean, it was you know I, I think if you were a if you're uh, for my parents if they were to have a son that was going to go in the military, um, I chose. The, like probably I was the least it was the least um, contentious time probably in, in the last hundred years because like you know from the end from when the Berlin Wall you know came down until 9-11 there really wasn't much conflict I mean there was always something happening it's like you know Saddam Hussein's acting up so we have to deploy our ships you know back to the Persian Gulf and I think that's I think ours our deployment was accelerated to do that but it was nothing like there is now I mean the closest I came to any kind of combat scenario was when China um, in 96 was trying to intimidate uh, the Taiwan when they were going to hold their first democratic elections. So we were like monitoring the situation, I think, in the to the south of the Taiwan Straits. And, mm-hmm. you know, China launched missiles and like we went to like actual combat stations, which we had never done before. Um, so like and I had been like tracking a Chinese submarine like earlier that night. So that was the closest I came. Yeah. But, you know, but I think like a lot of what's informed my, the podcast has been that idea of like our interconnection and our interdependence. Mm-hmm. And I think in the service and I guess, especially on a ship, since you're all kind of self-contained is where, I mean, maybe I think I probably forgot about this, but it was, you, you realize like how interdependent everybody was, right? Even the, the most senior officer is dependent on the most junior enlisted person, right? Even if you're in the army, if you're infantry, you know, the most senior officer can, you know, the entire platoon could be attacked and killed because somebody sneezed, right? Mm-hmm. Or somebody wasn't trained properly or somebody has, you know, wasn't wearing the right socks or didn't change their socks, whatever it is, right? And I think in modern society, either we're too busy to notice or we've just forgotten how we are really interdependent on everybody. And I think that's why I want to do this podcast is, you know, there's so many different levels. I mean, we, you know, we depend on the, you know, the food delivery guy or woman who brings your stuff to the Uber driver is not just a service. That's an actual human being. Um, you know, from that to nurses, doctors, firefighters, police officers, like everything. We're all interdependent. We even, you know, lawyers, bankers, like we all, everybody kind of serves a function. We're all dependent on each other. We're all connected. And what what happens does matter in other parts of the country. And we need to be, I think, aware of that both ways. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like probably throughout the military structure, just uh, just having the having a hierarchy, having a rank structure, but knowing that everybody deserves equal respect and um, uh, just like being able to communicate with people from all different areas. I mean, I feel like the military has given me so many skills of just being able to reach out to people and ask for help or like wanting to pass it forward, knowing that I was mentored by others. And I, I completely agree. I feel like technology has definitely made it a little bit more difficult for people to really keep in contact with others like 
I feel like, you know, you're standing at lo- in line getting a cup of coffee and every single person is on their phone. So it's kind of hard to, you know, talk, talk to strangers and get to know them when you're so reliant on it. Right. Yeah. And there's and that sense, that sh- sense of shared community just mm-hmm. kind of just gets that much more. And obviously there's different communities than like in your phone. And obviously we're using technology here to create some kind of a connection, but I still think that like that physical connection me- makes all the difference in, in the world in, in terms of like the depth of the relationships. Do you growing up from a point where email and computers and texting wasn't as big as it is now. Did you see a point where you like really saw communication and relationships change? Or has it really Um, happened gradually? And then you look back and you say, okay, wow. I think, I, I think you're more able to passively be informed about what people are doing, like with like Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the, I think maybe the, the nature, like like when my wife and I, like when I was deployed and when I was out to sea, you know, and, and for that first year, actually, like my wife was living in New York City and I was living in Japan and there was no, like you couldn't do a phone call every night. I mean, as it was, we had like $600 phone bills. I mean, just that idea of a phone bill seems preposterous now because you can just easily do like a Zoom or whatever. It doesn't cost you anything. But back yeah. then it was like the toll was ticking every minute was going to cost you a couple of dollars. So I think in some respects, like the... I think it's more you realize that like relationships are about the effort you put in, right? So like when we were apart, you know, we had to be apart, but we we're going to use video. We were going to send like, you know, videotapes to each other. We were going to send audio cassettes to each other. We would write lots of letters, you know, maybe send a gift or something. So you just do what you can to traverse the distance. And I think that we i think there should still be a premium on the physical mm-hmm. connectivity and using the technology to kind of overcome the distance that you can't avoid but at the end of the day like putting in the effort to see somebody communicates a lot about the value of that relationship you know mm-hmm. so like for me if i can i'd rather have coffee with somebody sometimes you can't because their schedule is too busy but like it means a lot when somebody takes the time to get on the subway and meet you for a cup of coffee, yeah. right? I mean, that means a lot more than just doing a Zoom. And you can't, you can only communicate so much. Like right now, I'm talking to you. I can't actually look at you because if I do, then it doesn't look like I'm looking at the screen. Right. So I can't necessarily see your your facial gestures and everything else. Yeah. So I, I think that, it, but I think it's all part of, I, I think I've been trying to be less dogmatic about stuff and just realize like everything is a tool. So we can use this as a tool to communicate. It, it doesn't it. replace... Yeah, no, you mentioned, you mentioned uh, talking to your wife in Japan. I was talking to a friend that I think he deployed in the early 2000s, like right after the surge in Iraq. And he was saying how, you know, he would have to uh, call his wife through a, a phone line. Everybody waited in line. You only had a certain amount of minutes. And I just think that's crazy because I was able to, I mean, it wasn't a great connection, but I was able to FaceTime my friends because we had Wi-Fi on base whenever I wanted or text people anytime I wanted. And it's just, it is, it, it changes really quickly, I think. But that face-to-face yeah. connection is very important. But on the other yeah. part of me is I feel like I've made a lot of connections just through social media and seeing where people are. And uh, actually this morning, I, so I grew up figure skating. That was kind of my oh, wow. uh, for oh. a really long time. 
And uh, a friend of mine that I skated with in college, uh, University of Vermont, she's out here for grad school. So uh, we met up last night and both of us were like, yeah, we haven't skated in uh, you know months, maybe years. So we went skating this morning at the local rink. And honestly, that would have never happened if I didn't have social media. Yeah. Yeah. No, and and I think it's I think it's good. I think it's just more like it's just another means of making connections, yeah. but it shouldn't replace the physical connections. Yeah. And I it's guess also, is the way I would look at it. It's also interesting because uh I think probably the generation that's growing up right now, the way I grew up with phones, like phones and FaceTiming was the the hot thing. I feel like this generation is gonna be growing up with artificial intelligence. And I even see that myself being in school. Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with ChatGPT, but I mm. will type in, you know, I want 10 multiple choice questions based off of this type of exam using these chapters from this textbook. Uh, and immediately it will give me like 10 multiple choice questions that I can use to practice. Or, you know, I want... Uh, I'm running a marathon and I want a training plan that will be 45 minutes, four days a week. This is what I want. And it will, it's, it is incredible and it will be interesting to see how it's, how it's used by, by everybody growing up now. Well, I can already tell you that my son has decided that he didn't have to write things. He would just ask, ask chat GPT. Oh, yes. <laughs> to write. And we had to tell him like, no, no, you have to, you still have to learn how to do it. Yeah. <laughs> like, and I, and I guess the challenges is like, you know, I think the calculator came out just, you know, you know, a little bit before I was went to elementary school and I'm sure that there was a big to do about like not learning how to add and subtract and divide, but it's, I think it's more just about it. Yes. And that's totally true. And honestly, I was thinking about this. So um, obviously with anesthesia, you have to do like a lot of mental math with, with medications, all that stuff. And uh, our program director was, you know, saying like, you know, if you're struggling with this mental math stuff, as we've seen in the last few classes, like I would highly advise you to like not use your phone when you're, you know, writing your 20% tip or whatever on, on, on a restaurant bill. Um, and I honestly think it's like the last few classes probably grew up with their first generation iPhones or whatever in their pocket. And so why do mental math when you can just pull out your calculator immediately and, and, you know, do it that way. Uh, yeah. and so it's just the tools that are at your disposal, which are great, but you start becoming a little too reliant on them. Right. And I guess that you have to, yeah, you got to be able to know because I think still the human brain is pretty um, flexible um, yeah. and still can, is still pretty handy. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, um, but I, I think, so what I, but what I, so what I tried to tell my son was like, just you have to know how to do this stuff first and then you can do it. Cause I think there's a point of repetition where it seems obviously this is silly. You shouldn't necessarily have to keep doing things over and over again. Like to me, the biggest example is like, think about how, how great an Excel spreadsheet is, mm -hmm. right? Like imagine having to do all the, imagine somebody saying, no, 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 you can't have an Excel spreadsheet. You need to do each one of those calculations by hand because that's the proper way to do it. Now, why, why would I have to do that? So I think to me, that's how I've been trying to frame chat GPT and artificial intelligence. I know that there are, I don't know enough about it to understand, to, to understand with any depth of understanding the dangers of it. Um, but I, I think there's a certain utility that I mean, it's, it's unavoidable, frankly. Yes. Yeah. I think it is unavoidable. 
Um, did you happen to read the transcript of the Bing AI uh, with that reporter? No, no. Okay. Uh, basically, Bing AI came out with uh, like a new artificial intelligence and they were trying it out in like their testing stage and they, they gave access to it to some reporter. I think it was from the Post or the Times or something. Um, and he started asking a ton of questions uh, and he introduced this thing called the shadow self of like, you know, what's the part of you that you try to hide from everybody? And it got very intimate and very dark very quickly. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's interesting. I'm, I'm interested to see any regulation that is coming up because I feel like all these tools like social media is great and it connects so many people, but obviously it can introduce so much misinformation and propaganda and echo chambers the same way. So I'm sure we'll see that in a few years. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think on the other hand, what, what I find, I don't know if it's, it was it was both like very um, frightening, but also I think good was that early earlier. I think this this technology just came out, and people kind of immediately afterwards were like, "Wait, wait, wait, wait maybe we need to think about this more." Like, yeah. So I mean, I, I kind of wish they. I mean, I don't. I feel like haven't they seen this movie? Like, didn't they think they should have had this discussion before they released it at all? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, we know how this wait, ends. Like, right? Like, didn't you see the term? Didn't you see Terminator? Like, yeah. I mean, like, so I, I feel like in that respect, there, there's, but, but you know, the, but the other thing too is like I was talking to somebody yesterday, and again, I, don't, I don't know how much you know about it. I don't know a lot about it, but they were talking about artificial intelligence and saying like, you know. It's definitely coming, but he was concerned about how it could stratify society more. Like if you embrace it, then you'll be better off. But for those who don't, they're going to be in a worse case. But to me, it's also like, but but if we're using artificial intelligence and it has all the answers, can't we ask artificial intelligence how to implement artificial intelligence in a way that doesn't stratify society? Oh, like, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah, why and where, yeah, like and where is the... I guess where's the compassion? Like there's already people thinking about the different ways to make money and do this with it. But where's like, you know, where are the more humane ways of using it? Like I was thinking, like, think about all the, um, you think about all the collective wisdom of people who've like lived 80, 90 years. Like, why can't there be some kind of like AI, which has kind of aggregated all that wisdom so that you could ask something for advice that would actually give you the voice of maybe some elderly person who experienced something that's relevant to what you're doing yeah. and where, and isn't there ways to create connections so that maybe there's an AI that could kind of pair people so that if a younger person wants to talk to an older person for advice, maybe they can connect them. Like, because there's so much, I think half of humanity's issues is people want to feel valued. Yeah. I think and like value we, purpose is huge. Yeah. So I think if you're an older person, like you have so much, you have such a reservoir of, of wisdom and experience. And like, to be honest, like if you think about like family dynamics, like a lot of times the kids don't want to talk to their parents because it's not like you can just get a straightforward answer. You're going to get an answer that's filtered by the decades of experience that your parents have had with you. So maybe they want to talk to an older person who has no experience. So like instead of a therapist, just talk to an older person. Yeah. An elder. Yeah, so. I, uh, actually, that brings up a good point. I am curious about how um, how it's going to be utilized in healthcare, um, in a in in both a can it read an X ray appropriately, or can it be a therapist 
Because um, obviously, I feel like telemedicine has gotten so big in the past five years, especially with COVID, which is great. It's obviously not a replacement for you know a, a physical assessment and visit, but uh, for those that are you know maybe living in rural areas and don't have access to healthcare or you know work crazy shifts and and can't make the normal times that they have available, I think it is a really great resource. Yeah. And, you know, and maybe it's something like from, I mean, you're, you're in the, the, you're in the healthcare world, but I talked to a friend of mine who's a uh, orthopedic surgeon in Milwaukee and he had commented about how much paperwork there is to do. So like maybe can't AI just kind of fill out all those forms for everybody. <laughs> so like the doctors can spend more time taking care of patients. So it's interesting you say that. Cause I feel like with, the electronic medical record coming out. Um, <clears throat> the physicians and the nurses that worked before that existed said they spent 10 times more time with the patient before that existed. And now it's a matter of like clicking boxes as fast as possible, writing notes, covering your own backside, like for all this stuff. So it's uh i think it's it's good for data collection but sometimes it takes you away from like the thing that you actually want to do which is a big complaint um yeah but yeah, yeah like could you use artificial intelligence to can you just like speak into it and then it will fill everything out yeah 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 i don't know I mean, so so I mean, we'll who, who knows yeah. we'll say yeah 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 so so what exactly so how you're pursuing your doctorate in nursing anesthesiology but you were what were you before this what was your did you have a specialty yeah, so or I were you graduated just a with nurse, a or? bachelor's in nursing um mm. and then i took the nclex which is the national exam became an rn registered nurse worked as a registered nurse for four years and then applied to school so now I'm going to be getting a DNP doctorate in nursing practice, specializing in nurse anesthesia. And what does that let you do that you weren't able to do before? So it is, um, it's an advanced uh, nursing degree. Basically, the best way I like to describe it is, um, it is, it is like an anesthesia. It's similar to an anesthesiologist. It's just a different route of training. We can still intubate, so put all in like the, we can put in breathing tubes, we can handle the airway, uh, we can uh, medicate the patient during surgery or provide pain medications during various procedures. Um, it's just a different route of training. And so what I get, and what can a, somebody I guess with like a, a medical, a medical doctor do that you can't do? Uh, we can technically do everything. Uh, okay. We can do everything. It's just depending on what state you're in. I would say uh -huh. uh, some of the more rural states have more liberal practice laws just because there, if there's a shortage of anesthesia providers, then there's going to be mm -hmm. more wait times for people needing surgery. Um, and so uh, CRNAs can do a lot more stuff in Oregon, let's say, than mm -hmm. Washington, D.C. or Maryland. Um, mm -hmm. I would say overall, uh, CRNAs aren't quite as big with regional anesthesia, which um, basically are like all the needle injections for various blocks that will like take away the pain and sensation and limbs. I would say that is less common um, across the board. But for the most part, you know, we can work in outpatient surgery centers. We can work in the hospital. 
Uh, we do a lot of obstetrics, so a lot of epidurals. Um, it just uh, depends on where you work. So, it's, so it sounds like it's almost more like you, you, you already have all this medical training instead of kind of forcing you to go repeat stuff and become a medical doctor. We might as well just kind of build on what you already know and get you to basically the same function as somebody who can administer anesthesia. Yes, it's it is a very political um, environment. I think just with. Uh, CRNAs uh, and their practice laws and then anesthesiologists because uh, mm -hmm. there's there's various uh, settings that they'll work together. So sometimes an anesthesiologist will be overseeing the CRNA and so they'll be overseeing about four CRNAs and patients. Um, sometimes it's a joint team. So each person kind of does their own thing, but they work together. Um, it, sometimes when you're in a more academic setting, you have a lot more residents and fellows and so anesthesiologists will take some of the more serious cases um mm. but yeah it's it's pretty much a very it's a very similar job just different set of training um and you can work in different environments I, the, the, from what i've heard or at least maybe this is just the the caricature but like anesthesiologists have the highest like malpractice insurance because of i guess the the risk of I I don't know necessarily know what is of administration of is that is that correct? I I don't know if it's the highest, but yes, I would say uh, anesthesia is a pretty a, like risky business just because um, you know when you give all these medications for people that are sick, you don't really know how the body is going to react. Obviously, you know you can predict it, but uh, for the most part. Um, Anything dealing with intubating a patient, you're taking away some of their reflexes. And if they can't oxygenate and they can't ventilate, then you're not going to last long. So it's like a very, it's a very high risk up and a high risk down. So a lot of people will compare it to flying a plane. So the landing, mm -hmm. the takeoff and the landing are the serious parts. Then once you're kind of at cruising altitude, you're fine. But uh, mm -hmm. I would say a lot of the, the malpractice and the lawsuits kind of happen on the takeoff and landing. So when you say innovate, like what, so what's the, where does the anesthesiologist become involved? Like where's your, your part in that? Yeah. Uh, so when mm -hmm. I say intubate, it's when you put, uh, it's called an endotracheal tube. It's when you put a breathing tube um, into your trachea. Uh, basically there's, uh, there's a few tools that you use. You give, um, you give a few drugs, you paralyze them while they're, after they're already asleep. And then you put the breathing tube into the airway, you inflate a balloon, and then you're able to ventilate and you're put on a ventilator. Um, anesthesiologists, uh, like, are you asking when do they get involved or how are they involved? Oh, no, no. I was just wondering what your role was. Oh, and you're, yeah. you're saying you basically you have to administer anesthesia to be able to intubate. Yes, for, for that. Okay. But there's various airway devices where, you know, you may or may not have to do that. But for the most mm -hmm. part, yeah, if you're going to be uh, sedating someone and making them sleepy, you want to make sure that they're airway is open and they're either able to breathe spontaneously or uh, you put something into their airway so it is held open. I I got a very minor surgery to just to clean out some uh, uh, some to work on my toe, and the only thing that I think really had me scary scared was the idea of going under. Yeah, um, and I, from what I've heard, that that's not an uncommon feeling. It's more just that fear of like I'm gonna go under and never wake up again. 
Yeah, I think it's it is scary, and that's kind of part of why I like anesthesia. It's like you're able to be a very calm presence and like give the patient a lot of hope before something very scary is about to happen because uh, you know you are totally out of control at that point, and you're going to sleep, and then when you wake up, like anything could happen, and so uh, having a really calm, present, calm and competent presence uh, and being able to mix certain medications and do certain interventions to make sure that when they wake up, you know, they're not in pain and they're not nauseous and they don't remember anything that is really important. And that's why I love my job. Uh-huh. Um, now, from what I've heard, it seemed like there was a lot, there was an exodus from the nursing profession after the pandemic. Yet you've doubled down, and yet you're you're yes. getting your, your your doctorate in it. Um, did did you see that? And what made you, despite that may or may not be happening, but what made you decide that I want to actually go further into this profession? Great question. Yes, uh, big exodus after the pandemic. Um, I think the pandemic for a lot of nurses did two things. One, they realized that. Uh, you are a body that staffs a unit and uh, the hospital system really don't care about individuals. I feel like um, uh, you're working incredibly tough shifts with incredibly sick patients day in and day out and the pay is not necessarily fair. People got very burnt out by it um, and I think the good that came of it is either like a lot of people went into travel nursing and that gave a lot of nurses the financial freedom from the really nice travel pay um, to dig themselves out of student loan debt or to put a down payment on a house or just to like live maybe a little bit more uh, freely. Um, I do, I think with the amount of nurses that are going to be retiring within the next few years and the pay where it is and the staffing considerations, uh, I do think that there is going to be a considerable shortage. Um, mm. The have you Do you know much about the staffing shortage? Um, or like safe no. staffing? Okay. So basically when, when nurses talk about <clears throat> safe, safe staffing, uh, when you come into work, Basically, for every unit, it's like for an ICU, you're going to have one patient or you're going to have two patients. If it's a one-to-one, it means that patient is really sick. There's a lot going on. That patient needs a one-to-one care. If it's like a one-to-two, it means, okay, they're in the ICU. They're still sick, but like they're not as sick. You can still keep an eye on them. Um, What happened in the pandemic is they would start taking really sick patients and they would pair them together to the point where like it did not feel like a safe situation and like nurses were stretched very thin and it was because there was not adequate staffing. Um, Staffing is a large part of the hospital budget. And so if you're able to reduce the number of staff that is working, then you're able to save money essentially. Um, However, you're putting those nurses in a spot where, you know, it's a career where you go home and you think about like all the things that you wish you could have done or like you didn't help someone or, you know, I would have a patient crashing in one room and then I would get another patient back from the OR or I would have a patient crashing and then the other one, they're, they're fine, they're stable, but like 
they soiled themselves and I don't have the time to go clean them up. So they have to, you know, sit in that for a long time. And it's just, it is not a good feeling. And I think a lot of nurses go into the field wanting to help people. And when you're stretched so thin and you uh, feel like you're put in unsafe situations out of your control uh, and you're also not getting paid appropriately, uh, yeah, people are done. They're burnt out and it's totally understandable. Now, is there, is, is it that nurses aren't getting, like in the military, for instance, you're asked to do a lot and you don't necessarily get paid for all of that, right? Um, part of it, I think, is because you kind of feel like you're, I, mean, I feel like one of the things in the, in the military world versus civilian is the military, because it has a limited budget, they have to use other forms of leadership like motivation and empowerment and respect and all those other things. Um, what I, what I wonder is like, is, is it, is it, are they, are the hospitals, the healthcare systems not doing that? Or is there, is there also a level of resentment because there are executives making a lot of money or lots of administrators making a lot of money and making more than you are while you're the one who's responsible for their lives and also risking your own life? Like, or is it, is it everything? Like what's what's going on? I, I think there was a lot of frustration because yes, a lot of the executives are making millions and you know, you're the union, like some of the nursing unions are arguing over a negligible percent raise. Um, and meanwhile, like you see the opposite side of it. Um, I think that, um, I think that like nurses are empowered. Um, however, like, I don't know. I think there there is probably a little bit of resentment um, and just frustration and burnout. And especially when, you know, for Happy Nurses Week, you'll get a pizza party or you'll get emails being like, hey, donate to this cause so we can make a new patient waiting room. And you're asking yourself, why am I donating to this when, you know, I'm working overtime to 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 live with four other roommates in, in my 20s, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, I, I feel like the nursing unions in California and on the West coast are completely different. Um, they're definitely a lot stronger and it's funny listening to a lot of travel nurses that have kind of gone throughout the country and seen, um, the differences in staffing from the West coast to the East coast. Cause, uh, like on the East coast, I, you know, I was definitely burnt out a little bit, but not nearly as bad as I think some friends that like worked in other areas of the country. And then I go to Seattle, I travel nursed out there. And I was like, this is freaky. This is amazing. This is incredible. Like I got an hour lunch break and nobody bothered me. Um, and so I think it's, it's a lot of perspective too. Mm-hmm. So how have you liked living in Oregon? Um, I have liked it. Uh, I think I've wanted to move out to the West coast for a long time. Cause we have, um, uh, we've always taken national park vacations out with my family when I was younger and I love the skiing. Um, it is definitely a different feel to the country. It's like a lot slower pace. I feel like than probably living in DC and New York and Vermont. 
Um, but the outdoors is beautiful. It's so accessible. Um, the rain is, it's, there's definitely a lot of rain out here, but it makes me really appreciate the nice weather that much more. Mm -hmm. Does the rain discourage you from going out or do you just have more rain gear? Uh, no, I still go out. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. It's not that bad. Uh, I feel like if you, you can either, you can go out to the mountains if it bothers you and you'll get a lot mm -hmm. of snow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and um, what like what is it was Portland like? I guess to equate it to like places in the Northeast because I've I've never been to Portland. W what does it like look or feel like, if anything? Uh, it's like a it? bigger, weirder Burlington, Vermont. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Bigger, weirder, and what's the weirder part of it? I think uh, obviously this is like a very liberal area and I just think that uh, it is a very welcoming city to people being who they want to be. Mm -hmm. um, uh, there is a great food scene. Um, there's a ton of concerts around. Um, yeah, it's it's a cool city. It's very unique. Yeah. And the um, I've seen pictures of some like kind of like beachside area where they have like all these kind of like almost like kind of like rock formation mountain type things kind of popping out of the water yes that it looks is, almost otherworldly like cannon beach uh that's okay. on the coast uh, yeah the whole coast of oregon and washington is kind of like that it's really pretty uh -huh. have you been I out to oregon or washington I uh, was we were in Seattle. No, no, we were in Vancouver for a day. That was it. I've never been to Washington, Oregon, though. Oh, OK. Yeah. It, 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 in some respects, when describing the when I think of the what I've seen, it almost yeah. seems a little Asian like. Yeah, it uh, it has it has a really unique feel. I would say that um, uh, it's kind of a mix of like B.C. with the mountains and Washington. And then you have the the ocean right there and you have all these volcanic mountains and the trees are huge and uh the outdoors are really beautiful out here so mm -hmm. i uh as much as i love the east coast i feel like maybe i'll probably stay out here for a year or two somewhere in this area just to explore after i graduated and I have a little bit more time on my hands but um mm -hmm. uh yeah it's been a really good experience and so or so how big is do you know how big portland is like population wise i honestly don't um, okay. it's a smaller, it's a smaller city. Right. Like I can get anywhere within 25 minutes, 30 minutes. And is the traffic really bad or is it tolerable? It's tolerable. I mean, I lived in DC and New York, so like nothing, Okay. <laughs> no, nothing <Okay>. can possibly <laughs> be as bad as that. Right. And, um, what, uh, what's the big like food there? Um, kind of, I would, mm. There's a lot of uh, various like Asian food um, out here, but I would say like their big thing is food trucks. There's so mm -hmm. many food trucks with like cool beer patios and beer gardens and uh, a lot of outdoor seating, super dog friendly. Um, so mm -hmm. I have this huge Portland Google list of all the places that I've gone to and like notes in it. Um, <laughs> I got I have a lot of stuff to do while I'm out here, I guess. <laughs> and is Oregon like there's Portland, which people have heard of, but outside of Portland, is the rest of Oregon more kind of like rural or what's yeah, the. What's, it's extremely yeah. rural. Like I feel like it gets mm. very rural within like 20 to 30 minutes outside the city, it turns into mm -hmm. a lot of farmland. 
there's a lot of vineyards around here, but it's it's mostly farming. Um, and so actually mm -hmm. that's part of our education is we have to do a few rural rotations at some smaller hospitals uh, in the state and Washington. Okay. I read a, when I talked about Lewis and Clark at the beginning of the podcast, I read a book about Lewis and Clark and they talked about, I guess, when they came to the Pacific because that happened in Oregon, right? And I, why am I forgetting the name of the river? What's the major river that they would have been traveling Columbia? down? Yeah, the yeah. Columbia River. Um, it just it sounds amazing, but like one of the things I remember here reading about was how they talked about the rain, like it was constant. It is. It's more overcast. It's funny. My um, my mom. Uh, we were talking about the weather or something or how the winter was, and I was like, "Yeah, you know, everybody warned me it was going to be terrible, but I don't think it's that bad." I, you know, I feel like I see the sunshine maybe twice every. 10 days, two weeks. That's not terrible. And she's like, are you listening to yourself? It's like, great. Maybe that's, maybe that's a little weird, but it makes you appreciate it a lot more. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and have you, do you go off on like, like long extended hikes or how are you enjoying the nature? Yeah, I do a lot of hiking. I've done a lot of skiing actually. Um, Mount hood, uh, the, it's a volcano, but at one of the higher elevations, their ski resort pretty much runs through September. Um, just because the snow is always there. So the U S ski team comes and does a lot of like freestyle camps and stuff. So two days ago, there is a, a big solstice party on the top. And so I, I do a lot of backcountry skiing. And so you put these Velcro things on the back of your skis and, uh, it's a special binding. So you pretty much hike up with your skis on and then you, you ski down. Um, so I did that for sunset the other day. It was cool. It was my wow. first, it was my first June ski day. <laughs> I mean, you said you can ski through September. Yeah, yeah. There, I think the lift operates through August or September. Wow, that's yeah. amazing. Yeah, um, and what's the water like? Is it cold up there? Like, to, can you go to the beach? Like, what are the beaches like? I have not swam in the beach yet. I okay. imagine it's pretty cold. I know it's a pretty big surfing location, and then kiteboarding is oddly very big up here. Um, mm -hmm. and everybody wears pretty thick wetsuits, so. I don't, okay. I don't think it's like a New York type, New Jersey type beach. And do you guys get like earthquakes? Uh, we do. I have not felt one. Um, but there's all these tsunami warnings uh, across like the coastal areas because um, the natural disaster threat up here, besides from wildfires, which I experienced last summer, the big one. The big one is the big one. It's called, it's like these tectonic plates off the coast of Washington and Oregon. And if they like slide together, it would cause a massive tsunami that pretty much wipes everything out west of Portland, which is a massive area. And they know this because they found salt on tree rings at a certain year and they found the same evidence in Japan around the same year on their trees which is crazy. I don't know. I, wow. Whenever I procrastinate, I go into these like natural disaster holes on YouTube. So I'm very, <laughs> very aware of these. <laughs> and that like, that helps that, that. And then you're able to go back to your, <laughs> to your work and study after yes, going honestly, down that. It's, well, it's a little weird. Maybe I have a little prepper in me. I don't know. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you might want to go like a little. Maybe we might go to like Idaho Health and Science. Yeah, uh, I University. know. I know. I need. To, I need to develop my go bag a little bit more before I do that. <laughs> well, I'm like one block away from the water, so we've already <laughs> kind of resigned ourselves. <laughs> Although you, I mean, you grew up right on the water too on Long Island. Yes. Yeah, I grew up right? on the North Shore, about like 10, 15 minutes away from the North Shore and from Smithtown, Stony Brook. Yeah. 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 The um, I used to ride my bike up to the Nisquag Golf Club because oh. that's where I had a job once. So one summer I was riding my bike up there and then I drove up there. But um, that was a, it was a long ride and then you still had further to go to get to the beach. But yeah, yeah. Some fond memories. Very fond memories. I feel like I appreciate <laughs> New York a lot more that I've moved away. I don't know. I Is think, that right? Um, I I skated a lot in high school, and so I don't think I have a, a typical high school experience. I don't. I think I was more shy, um, and so I was like very ready to get away when I went to college, and I definitely found my my people at University of Vermont. Um, but now that I've moved away, I feel like I appreciate the fact that I lived, you know, an hour or so outside the city. And I remember I was in the political awareness club in high school and we went to the UN for a field trip, which was incredible. Or, you know, for elementary school, the, the first big field trip to the city was a Broadway play and we saw Phantom of the Opera. Um, and I didn't I don't think I really appreciated that until I moved away. I was like, man, that is very unique and like whenever i go home i can go into the city and it's it's great yeah yeah we um our building is like like about a block off the water like i mentioned and on our rooftop you can we overlook new york harbor so we can like see a statue of liberty oh, I, man, I go shopping cool. at the grocery store and you see the statue of liberty i take some i think they're pretty good photos of it but it's just like this part of our everyday life i know and you don't really appreciate it until like someone is like you know someone kind of puts it into perspective. I feel yeah. like when I moved out to, um, like when I moved to DC, one of the apartments that I lived in, I was uh, about a mile away from the Capitol. And so my running route that I would do when I would work out was around the Supreme Court and around the mall. And that was my neighborhood. Oh, wow. uh, and then I go to New York and it's like that, or, you know, I, look out the window when I was in Seattle as a travel nurse and I would see Mount Rainier and the Harbor. Uh, it's cool. It, I feel yeah. like all those experiences it can get mundane after a while, but you realize how uh, unique it is. Yeah. And I, you know, the, and I think I don't, I, I'm, I still, I like New York and we were comfortable here and, and it, it works. Um, I think like it's given me, I think it was good to live overseas. Cause I felt like one of the, one of the things that I realized was like, I think living in Japan, I also kind of saw, cause I was there for three years. I saw how, you know, how I guess dysfunctional Japan was as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think what I found it was, was it was kind of, it was comforting to see that like the United States doesn't have a monopoly on dysfunction. Yeah. That's funny. Yes. <laughs> Everybody has their own problems. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, so greener, I think, but I promise you the grass isn't as green. Once you get over there, it's going to be the opposite. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I think like, to me, that was one of the insights isn't necessarily to be like, Oh, New Yorkers better. It's just, it's not as 
bad as other places. And I think that's one of the things I try to check myself on. Like when we travel is to realize like when you are visiting a place, you're, you're on vacation, you're in vacation mode, you're enjoying yourself. That's fine. Yeah. Um, if you stayed longer, you would see some of the problems and living in Japan for three years, you just kind of saw like all this stuff where you're like, you know what? Yeah. Yeah. Like it's, so I don't know. I, I find it, I've maybe I might've forgotten this, but I, as I've gotten older and had more perspective, I've realized like, you know, yeah, you know, the U S has problems there, but there's, yeah, there's, there's every, they're everywhere. It is. Yep. And I'm sure you saw that when it's you're in Madagascar. And like and... In the grand scheme of things, I feel like they're, they're pretty first world problems compared to some of the things that other people have to go through. So yeah. I'm, yeah. I am grateful to be born in this country and grateful to serve. And just like that, there's a lot of problems and we should work on those, but still happy to be here. Yeah. Well, you know, and that's why, like, for me, one of the things, and I'll close by mentioning it, but I think is that idea of, like, I don't know, compassion and respect and humility and curiosity, because I think that's that part that I think you kind of, like, we forget. And I think to me, sometimes even, like, the idea of, like, a first world problem should like we shouldn't we have to almost check ourselves to even think about that as such like we should you almost like we should be more like it's hard to there's one way of saying that like you should be grateful for what you have because of all the things other people have which causes you to like have pity for others and then feel good about yourself and it's a little more complicated than that yeah. because what i see is like i think just be grateful for what you have everybody is try you should be try to be grateful for what you have because there's nothing else you can do other than work with what you got yeah. So there are rich people that are really unhappy and there are, there are people who are not rich who are very happy. Yeah. So it's really more about making the best of making the most of what you have. Absolutely. And, and maybe trying to control the urge to ever get to the point of frustration where you have to look down at other people and say, Oh, but you know, it could be worse. We could be them. I think there's a lot of power in not comparing yourself to others. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things I try to tell my boys is like, you know, if you were watching a race, you might see the guy who wins and be like, okay, well, that's the winner. And like, but we'll think about it. Like, what about the person who's in last place? I mean, maybe that was the best time they've ever run. Yeah. And the guy who won first actually was like hung over and didn't really work that hard. So like who really won the race? I mean, in one sense, yeah, that guy won. But in another respect, the one who just had that personal best, maybe that's the winner. So, well, I'm sure you have other things to do and we just hit the hour mark. So, I mean, I guess if we can wrap up. Can I ask like what, what gives you hope at the end of the day? Um, I think overall, I, I love my friends. I love my family and I feel like, uh, the people that I meet from all over the country, they have a great sense of humor and they're ultimately very kind once you get to know them. Yeah. Yeah. And you've, and you've been, sounds like you've been all over. So yeah. Thank you so much for having me. No, thank thank you. And uh, thank you to all the listeners and viewers out there. May you go out and explore our country with curiosity, respect, compassion, and humility. All right. Thanks so much, Laura. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. 